Welcome to AEM Early Access, a collaboration between Brown University Emergency Medicine and the editors of the Academic Emergency Medicine Journal. I'm Dr. Gita Pensa, and here's what we've got for you today. At some point in our careers, we all find out the hard way that patients who are very ill are at high risk for deterioration around the time of endotracheal intubation. Children are sadly no exception, and today we're taking a look at a recent paper in AEM entitled Identification of the Physiologically Difficult Airway in the Pediatric Emergency Department. We have lead author Dr. Preston Dean here with us today to talk about this paper, the physiologically difficult airway, and what characteristics in children might bring our attention to the risk of peri-intubation cardiac arrest. Dr. Dean is a third-year pediatric emergency medicine fellow at Cincinnati Children's Hospital with a career goal to improve the care and outcomes of critically ill children in the emergency department, and we are so happy to be talking with him today. Don't forget to read the full text of this article, available on our blog at brownemblog.com. Dr. Dean, it's so great to have you with us today. So, so your paper investigates the risk factors for peri-intubation cardiac arrest in critically ill children and the physiologically difficult airway. And I think most of us, when we hear difficult airway, we are thinking things like epiglottitis, angioedema, trauma, you know, all these things that make an airway anatomically difficult to navigate. And that's not what we're talking about in this paper. So let's start with the very basics. What is a physiologically difficult airway? Yeah, thanks, Dr. Pence. Thanks so much for having me. I'm uh, really excited to talk about our work. Uh, So we completely agree that historically the term difficult airway has almost exclusively focused on the anatomically difficult airway. Now, in contrast, the term physiologically difficult airway was first described in the literature within the past decade and usually describes patients with physiologic derangements like hemodynamic instability, cardiac dysfunction, or hypoxia that increase the risk of decompensation, including cardiac arrest with intubation. Okay, that makes sense. Um, so before this study, what did we know about peri-intubation cardiac arrest in kids? Um, by the way, can I just say up front that this whole paper terrified me? Um, <laughs> and having been in this scenario before, it's just, it's just, it's maybe it's PTSD, but it's good to talk about. So uh, what was known about peri-intubation cardiac arrest in, in children? And um, I mean, do we have better data in adults or what do we know? Yeah, so historically, not much, honestly. Um, the, the information in the published l- literature um, regarding peri-intubation arrest in children has been really, really limited. Uh, what we do know is that in the majority of studies um, that have uh, looked at peri-intubation arrest in children, it occurs in roughly 1% to 2% of cases in the ED. Um, However, it really hasn't been looked at in depth, and the risk factors for arrest have really been incompletely described, especially in the ED. Uh, It is really important to note when when reading these papers that the definition of peri-intubation arrest can vary greatly between studies. So the intervals can range from five minutes post-intubation to up to 30 minutes post-intubation. And I think that should be taken into account when when interpreting the results. Uh, For reference, we chose 10 minutes uh, post-intubation for our study. So up until the past few months, um, which saw the publication of this study, as well as another recent uh, PDD-based study, uh, literature regarding peri-intubation arrest in children 
during emergency airway management was really limited to ICU-based studies. Uh, there are a couple of studies that, that both were analyses of the Near for Kids National Airway Registry, so a large national database, uh, and they found that hemodynamic instability or shock, hypoxia, and cardiac disease were all independently associated with an incre- increased risk of perintubation arrest. With many topics, you know, the adult literature is always a few years ahead on this topic. So there's a few more studies that exist, and they've all found, or they found that uh, multiple attempts, hypotension, hypoxia, and a high shock index were all risk factors for perintubation arrest in adults. So the objective of your study was to develop these high-risk criteria for perintubation cardiac arrest during emergency tracheal intubation in the pediatric ED. So this was a retrospective cohort study of patients who were undergoing emergency intubation in a pediatric ED and comparing outcomes between patients meeting one or more versus no of high-risk criteria. So, so first, let's talk about what the high-risk criteria you were examining were and how did you determine what those factors would be? Yeah, so this is a great question. Uh, so we used six high-risk criteria, and they were hypotension for age, concern for cardiac dysfunction, persistent hypoxia, which we defined as SATs less than 90%, despite supplemental oxygen or positive pressure, severe primary metabolic acidosis with a pH of less than 7.1, a patient who is post-return of spontaneous circulation, and patients with status asthmaticus that are being intubated. I'm really glad that you asked the question about how we determine these criteria. Much of this work began after an unfortunate index case a few years ago in RED, uh, in which a patient with unrecognized myocarditis suffered cardiac arrest with intubation. That case, as well as other recent cases, led to a collaborative improvement effort between providers in RED and our PICU that was designed to improve the care for patients at the highest risk for decompensation with intubation. Our improvement team reviewed 10 cases in which patients suffered cardiac arrest within four hours of admission to the ICU, searching for common patient characteristics that we could help to to develop criteria that would identify these patients. And we used this review in combination with the data available in the published literature, which we talked about was limited, as well as group consensus from our improvement team to help develop the criteria. It's probably important to note that we have focused many efforts over the past decade on on studying resuscitation, and specifically airway management in our PTD. We have an overhead continuously recording video camera system, and each intubation is reviewed in great detail. So our experience reviewing hundreds of these videos uh, in this fashion also contributed to our drafting of the high-risk criteria. So tell us a little bit more about your study design and your methods, your secondary outcomes, et cetera. Absolutely. So although we have continuously recording video cameras in our trauma bays, videos are automatically deleted after six months. Thus, this study was unable to utilize video review for data collection, which would have been ideal. Mm. So this was a retrospective cohort study comparing patients that met one or more of the previously described criteria versus patients that met no high-risk criteria, with our primary outcome being perintubation arrest. We defined perintubation arrest as documented chest compressions or V-fib, PEA, asystole, all within 10 minutes of the end of an intubation attempt. We utilized the electronic medical record and our institution's practice of real-time charting by nursing team lead during resuscitations to gather data. Our secondary outcomes included any cardiac arrest in the emergency department after intubation, regardless of time from the end of the intubation attempt, activation of ECMO, in-hospital mortality, and procedural success. Given that our outcomes were, re- were rare, we used Fisher's exact test to evaluate for associations between groups and outcomes. Okay, so you excluded 
crash intubations and traumatic intubations. So can you explain why you excluded them? And just in that, can you describe for us what your normal setup is for how intubations go in your pediatric ED? Absolutely. Uh, this is a wonderful question. And I think it's really crucially important uh, to understanding our findings and how they relate to other recently published studies. So first, I'd like to start off by describing our approach to emergency airway management. So in RED, we have a unique and highly refined approach to intubation, which should be taken into account when considering our results. First, airway management is standardized for all patients. So we utilize a pilot-copilot model with a team lead attending and a second attending or fellow running our intubation checklist. This checklist includes many things, uh, includes reminders for at least three minutes of pre-oxygenation, the use of apneic oxygenation during an attempt, at least one minute of reoxygenation after a missed attempt. Now, additionally, we almost exclusively perform a kind of a modified version of rapid sequence intubation in which the patient gets a sedative and a paralytic in rapid succession, but then we almost always ventilate through bagging uh, once a patient becomes apneic before an intubation attempt starts. Hmm. We almost all, almost exclusively uh, exclude general pediatric residents from intubating, though we do have plenty of emergency medicine residents intubate. We almost exclusively use the stores CMAC video laryngoscope for intubation attempts, and and our and our uh, and our trauma base that includes the use of an HDMI cord that's plugged into a large flat screen on the black on the back wall of the room, so that the team leader and the entire room can visualize what's happening in the mouth during an intubation attempt. Finally, and, and probably most importantly, when considering our findings, uh, is that due to the significantly shorter safe apneic period in children when compared to adults. We limit the duration of individual intubation attempts to 45 seconds uh, after the blade enters the mouth. So we use a stopwatch and ask the proceduralist to pull the blade out of the mouth at 45 seconds if an attempt is not successful by that time. Mm -hmm. So in that context, we chose to exclude crash intubations as these patients at our institution are, are almost exclusively either in cardiac arrest or, or very, very much carry arrest. We also chose to exclude trauma patients uh, as a major component of this improvement effort. Uh, it was focused on early ICU involvement in these high-risk patients. And for our traumatically injured patient, patients with our highest level of trauma activation, uh, it, it already includes an ICU senior fellow or attending that comes down to the trauma bay, as well as an anesthesiologist. So we thought that, plus the underlying physiologic differences uh, for the reasons for cardiac arrest in traumatically injured patients, like hemorrhagic or obstructive shock, we felt like those patients were different enough to warrant being excluded from the study. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you. Um, so next, your team queried the, the EMR database for patients fitting the criteria that we talked about before between January 1st, 2016, and March 31st, 2019. So tell us more about the characteristics of the subjects, and then let's talk about what you found about these high-risk criteria. Absolutely. Uh, so after exclusions, our study sample included 213 patients. This was uh, consisted of 36 patients that met at least one high-risk criteria and 177 patients that met no high-risk criteria. There were some between group differences uh, between the patients that met at least one high-risk criteria versus those that met none. So there was a trend towards younger age in the high-risk group with a median age of 8.5 months versus 18 months. However, the differences were not statistically significant. Mm -hmm. Additionally, high-risk patients were much more likely to be intubated for sepsis or be post-cardiac arrest, and standard-risk patients were more likely to be in status epilepticus than high-risk patients. Of the 36 patients that were high risk, 12 met two high risk criteria and four met three high risk criteria. 
The most common high-risk criteria were hypotension, concern for cardiac dysfunction, and hypoxia. Atominate was the most common sedative used, uh, but in high-risk patients, there was an increased use of, of ketamine when compared to standard-risk patients. And succinylcholine was the most commonly used paralytic. In high-risk patients, there was an increased use of rocuronium. Mm -hmm. So for a primary outcome, a parent-intubation arrest, 5.6% of patients uh, that met at least one high-risk criteria suffered parent-intubation arrest compared to zero of the 177 in the standard risk group. And though this outcome was rare, the results were statistically significant. And in addition to an increased risk of parent-intubation arrest, our high-risk criteria were also able to delineate a more ill group of patients overall, with a significant difference of in-hospital mortality between groups, as 25% of our high-risk patients suffered in-hospital mortality compared to 2.3% of standard-risk patients. And personally, what I found to be really interesting from our from our study was that although our study focused on the physiologically difficult airway, there was a significant difference in first-pass success when comparing high-risk patients to standard-risk patients, with 66% first-pass success in standard-risk patients compared to only 47% in high-risk patients. Hmm. Though we were not able to use video review or intraoral video laryngoscope data to determine the exact reasons for reduced first-pass success in the high-risk group, Based on our higher group's experience, we suspect that these patients were more ill, and thus proceduralist stress level could have been higher. The patient was more likely to suffer early hypoxia during an attempt and led to earlier abortion of attempts, and high-risk patients being younger all could have played a role. Very interesting. So, yeah. so how do your findings compare with the other studies, um, the other recent studies of peri-intubation arrest in the pediatric ED or the PICU? Yeah, so the as, as I mentioned before, the two main studies of peri-intubation arrest uh, during emergency airway management in the ICU were both analyses of the Near for Kids National Airway Registry. Uh, one study published by published by Shima et al. in 2016 looked for overall risk factors for cardiac arrest within 20 minutes of intubation. They found that 1.7% of their population suffered cardiac arrest, and on multivariable analysis, hemodynamic instability or shock hypoxia, and cardiac disease were all associated with cardiac arrest. The second study was by Gratage et al. that was published in 2018, and they specifically evaluated the presence of cardiac disease as a risk factor for peri-intubation arrest in the ICU, and they found that patients with cardiac disease were more likely to suffer arrest than those without. The only other uh, PEDZD-based study was published within a few months of our work. Uh, this study was by Pokerjack et al. Uh, it was a nested case control study out of San Diego designed to identify risk factors for peri-intubation arrest in their patient population. Now, interestingly, they reported significantly higher rates of peri-intubation arrest when compared with our studies or some of the other work that's out there. This finding was likely impacted by their inclusion of patients that underwent crash intubations, which we excluded. In terms of results, they found that young age, hypoxia, and hypotension were all risk factors for peri-intubation arrest. Now, to our knowledge, no studies um, besides ours have evaluated the impact of severe metabolic acidosis, being in a post-ROS state, or status asthmaticus as risk factors for peri-intubation arrest in the PTD. Great. So uh, let's talk about limitations of the study. Are there any limitations of the study you'd like to discuss? Yeah, absolutely. And I think our limitations are very, very important to discuss uh, so first and foremost, this is an exceptionally rare outcome. So for any individual site to study, and although we feel confident you know, that we've identified a sicker patient population overall that are at higher risk for cardiac arrest, our data is absolutely limited by the rare frequency of our primary outcome. So further multi-site validation is crucial and necessary before our findings can be completely generalizable. A second important limitation to discuss is that the study was based on chart review. 
uh, over the past decade, our study group has found that video review of high stress, low frequency events in the PZD leads to more reliable data collection than chart review. So in an ideal world, this study would have been performed by video review. Uh, for legal reasons, our videos in our trauma bay are permanently deleted after six months of recording, which is why the study was unable to be performed by video. We're currently prospectively evaluating our high-risk criteria using video review uh, at our institution. Excellent. So, so finally, what, what would you like us to come away from this study with, and uh, what do you think needs to come next? Yeah, so I think the most important thing that I hope people take away from this study it's crucially important as part of your, your normal pre-intubation safety checks and normal processes to consider risk factors for physiologically difficult airways, just like most already do to evaluate risk factors for anatomically difficult airways. With that, I think our high-risk criteria are a great starting point, but I think that even the simple act of just pausing before an intubation, considering if now is the most appropriate time to intubate the patient or do they need further optimization, that's exceptionally, exceptionally important. Clinical decisions in these types of patients are complicated, they're multifactorial, no prescriptive algorithm can be applied to all of these patients. But for now, I think the best that we can do is identify high-risk patients, fix correctable problems, be prepared for potential arrest in high-risk patients, and determine the safest location and proceduralist for high-risk patients. Mm -hmm. That answer leads nicely into your question about what the next steps are. So first, as I mentioned previously, we need to validate our high-risk criteria on a multi-center level in different institutions with different approaches to emergency airway management. We are actively planning this work and are excited to see what the data looks like at other sites. Second, and probably the most important thing is translating this work into actual clinical practice. As I briefly touched on a few times, at our institution, we have developed an improvement group that is designed to improve the care and reduce risk in these patients. The first step of this work is presented in the study, which is identifying patients that are at highest risk. From there, we use the high-risk criteria to develop a new pager alert system in our shock trauma suite when one of these patients is identified and planned to be intubated. This activation system prompts a thank you senior fellow we're attending to present down to the trauma bay as quickly as possible in an effort to promote early collaborative discussions about the optimization of the patient's physiologic status, determine the most appropriate procedure list, determine the most appropriate location for intubation. It also recommends cardiac arrest safety measures be put in place, like code DOSEPI be drawn up before an attempt, defibrillator pads be down, uh, be on the patient before an attempt, and a CPR backboard be under the patient before an attempt. And then finally facilitates rapid transfer of the patient once ED care is complete. Uh, the details of this improvement project were just recently published uh, online ahead of print in Pediatric Quality and Safety. Erin Hain uh, was the first, first author on that paper, uh, and she was one of the driving forces behind the development of this improvement process. This new pager activation system has been live at our institution since April of 2019, and although primary outcomes are rare, definitive inclusions cannot be made yet uh, in patients that this process has been activated, none have suffered pair intubation arrest. Well, thank you so much for your time and your work and for coming to talk to us about this. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It was a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to this month's AEM Early Access. The full text of this article is available on our blog at brownemblog.com, open access for a limited time. Check out all of our podcasts on iTunes. Search for AEM Early Access, all one word. Today's music is by Scott Holmes. I'm Dr. Gita Pensa, and we'll see you next time.